Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats in an ongoing cyber war. It's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cybersecurity America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Joshua Nicholson. Welcome to the show. This is Joshua Nicholson. And today we have a really exciting guest. We're going to talk about risk management governance at the board level. We got our guest, Chris Hetner, that's joining us today. Before we get into conversations related to everything SEC and government and board related, we're going to turn it over to Aaron Beerland for our threat intelligence report of the day. Thanks, Josh. For today, I've got a few subjects to kind of cover that you and your guests can dive into. But for the intelligence update for this week, one of the big primary ones that's actually breaking out today was a massive ransomware campaign that was leveraging a known vulnerability in VMware ESXi servers, which was known as XIRs. And this ransomware attack was focusing primarily on a CVE that was from 2021. It's 2021-21974. And it's actually affecting ESXi servers that are internet-facing, but they're internet-facing servers that are not that are outside of the normal update structure. So a lot of our clients were actually reacting to this, thinking that this was going to be more of the VMware targeting that we had seen in the past. And it is, except all of the patches that have been applied since 2021, if you have an ESXi server that was bought after 2021, or if you've stayed in the normal patching status, everything should be fine. But it is impressive how many actual... Uh, effects there were, how many organizations were affected, even though a lot of these servers were so far outside of date. And this shows exactly why targeting public vulnerabilities is such a big deal for a lot of these threat actors because they get so much success because there's such a slow patching status in a lot of organizations, either because they don't have the, the normal attack surface reduction or vulnerability management programs, and they're not very mature, it's something that they don't pay attention to, or there's misconfigurations in their inability to see it, because this was primarily focusing on at exposed devices that were able to obviously be easily scanned for and then manipulated because it was shown that those were vulnerable. So that's the first subject that I wanted to cover today. And the second one, which isn't the same, but it's very similar in the idea of how we see these threat actors move and how we see them kind of move around different measures and adapt. And that would be seeing a lot of the activity that's coming out of Sliver. And for those of you who don't know what Sliver is, Sliver is a penetration testing tool. It's an open source tool, very similar to Cobalt Strike. This was something that was developed to help penetration testers and look for vulnerabilities and look for methods of exploit to be able to do security testing within networks. Except, of course, it got weaponized by threat actors. One of the unique things about Sliver, uh, for instance, is it's written in Golang. Golang is not a very popular language. It's difficult to sandbox because it's not one of the you know, majority languages that's used a lot in programming. So it's 
hard to sandbox. It's hard to analyze. And it's hard to find experienced analysts who understand the language enough to be able to reverse engineer what's going on and be able to actually do proper analysis on it. Additionally, it allows threat actors to use Sliver to target Linux, Windows, and Mac. So this is a far more aggressive tool that can be easily used with low sophistication as long as the person deploying it uses has an understanding of Golang. But in the particular campaign that we're that we were seeing reported this week, they were also combining it with a very popular tactic that we're seeing emerging out. And it's one of the things that we cover in our 2023 threat landscape as what our threat defenders need to focus on. And that is known as bring your own vulnerable driver. This particular campaign was focused, was taking an anti-cheat driver from a Chinese company that's made for gaming, but it's a recognized driver. It's authorized by Microsoft. So there's no additional security check. It checks all the boxes. It has the right signature. It has the right dates. Everything's great. And according to Microsoft, this is a perfectly good driver. The problem is, is the driver is vulnerable. So what the threat actors will do, push this driver over to their victim, their victim downloads the driver, the threat actor then is able to leverage the vulnerability within that driver, load sliver in, and then load any of their follow on malware. Specifically, a lot of the activity that we saw from this was XMRIC. So this is a lot of cryptocurrency mining, stealing your CPU, being able to do that, being able to turn victims into botnets and things of that nature. So it hasn't expanded into ransomware and things that a lot of our clients worry about, but it's definitely one of those entry vectors that you have to be concerned about because anybody who's mining for cryptocurrency is likely going to also sell your access. And then the final one that I want to point out was we released this actually as a report out of Deep Seas last week. And it it's a tactic that we're seeing happen now that Microsoft has blocked macros. A lot of people were excited late last year. Microsoft came out and said, you know what? We're just, we're not doing macros anymore. We're going to auto block it because it's being so highly used by threats all over the internet. So they blocked macros. Well, naturally, we knew that there was going to be a pivot from threat actors. That pivot that we're, or at least one of the pivots that we're seeing, they've moved over to OneNote. And I know I've discussed this previously on the program when I've come on, but we're seeing this weaponized even more and more. And the reason why is because of all the ability to embed into OneNote. But additionally, something that a lot of of the folks out there need to think about is we're all aware now of malicious documents. That's something that you hear about. It's in common employee training. It's in any sort of cybersecurity training. But what about embedded links in a document that you're not used to looking at? A Word document that tells you to start a macro. Well, everyone's trained that that's probably phishing or there's a misspelling. But what if it's something that's in a document you're not familiar with? And OneNote is something that's used a lot in only certain areas. So when there's all the embed things that make OneNote such a powerful tool to use in a lot of businesses... They're leveraging that instead of macros, the ability to reach back, say, via HTML, the ability to just have files embedded directly in it. This is a lot of what threat actors are using, and it was all just to get around the fact that Microsoft blocked macros. So anytime that you're celebrating something or you're excited and you're glad that a large software provider 
has patched something, the next step in intelligence that you need to take is how it, how is my enemy or the threat actor going to then shift? What is it that they're going to do to target me next? Because they're not going to stop looking at ways to get onto your network. You just now have to look for the new pathway that they're going to use. But it, pending any questions, that's what I have for intelligence this week. Wow, that was a lot, Chris. Well, wow, you covered a good bit of action that's going on this week. So the VM vulnerability, are we seeing a lot of activity right now about that? Is that something that we should have elevated concern about? Or what are your thoughts? There was a lot of activity that was being reported over the weekend. There were threads that were stood up at places like Bleeping Computer on their forum. There was a lot of activity on, on social media, people reporting that their VMware ESXi servers were being locked up. But on further investigation and statements coming from VMware itself, that is when they that is when they stated that this is something that is targeting a it's an open SLP service that has been disabled by default since 2021. Anyone that's patched would have this disabled by default. So unless they have it open, which is not a common, if they have it open and it's publicly facing, then it would be an issue. But for the most part, this was targeting internet facing and out of band. ESXi servers. So it did look large scale because of a lot of the reporting we were seeing, but it also looks for most most organizations. This would be something that is likely patched. This is something that likely isn't going to be public facing, but we never want to assume all of that. But the majority of like our clients, for example, have already run the patches on this, but it did look large scale because of how much was being targeted. So the threat actor obviously looked for anybody that had this publicly facing, had it exposed and just started leveraging everybody that they could. So it did look very large scale, but but now we know by looking at the victimology here that it was only that very specific section of ESXi servers that were being targeted. Yeah. All right. That's good info. Now, Log4j, Log4Shell, are we still seeing, was there a good remediation effort on that? Are we still seeing threat actors targeting? And I, I'm going to assume we're going to have log4j in environments for a while just because of the nature of some some environments are terrible about patching and addressing it but what are you seeing from a threat landscape is that still a target vector yeah so the remediation of it was great and the fact that so many people came together and found ways around it and and we really saw what makes cybersecurity great especially in the United States it is still the top targeted those are the two top targeted vulnerabilities that we see currently right now, even in 2023. So threat actors are still finding a lot of viability there. You know, for whatever reason, this is still a viable vector of approach. And I know a lot of organizations out there know that they're clear, but there's so many that aren't. And there's so many that just don't do your normal patching cycle. And a lot of this is small businesses. You know, like it sounds judgmental for us to say it like that, but small businesses may be susceptible to this, but they don't have, you know, a large scale IT department. So threat actors are still finding a very viable landscape. I think they will for some time. And then having a concerted effort, like we talked about a service was attack surface reduction. It's not just vulnerability management, it's attack surface reduction where you're doing a vulnerability management function, but only as a data feed into an larger risk management program that that takes patching into account from multiple different sources and and so forth. So I think there's more of a holistic approach towards it where you can use intelligence to to key in on what's what's important, what's not. 
Yeah. And anything else, Aaron, that, that is, that is related, do you think is relevant? Nothing real large just yet. The only thing that I would say that kind of sits within the current affairs, and maybe, maybe you guys will talk about this later on in the program is with some of the diplomatic tensions that came with the whole Chinese spy balloon. And then the reaction Mm. that we're seeing coming from China, the cancellation of a trip of the secretary of state going into Beijing to meet with president Xi. Uh, That is something that you're going to want to monitor anytime diplomatic tensions start to increase. We're going to shift our focus over and see what kind of activity we see coming out of China, of which we've already seen some elevation there, but there's likely going to be more of an elevation. So if you know that China is one of the nation states that targets your organization, you're going to want to be just extra vigilant over the next couple of weeks and monitor what's happening with that situation and what kind of saber rattling might come between the United States and China, because they're going to want to increase a lot of that cyber activity just to kind of do a show of force. So that's something you want to keep an eye out on. But other than that, hopefully it's a pretty quiet week for everybody. You know, and what's interesting, I think we all saw the pictures of the balloon and, and my neighborhood did too as well. We had people that were stepping outside their house and looking up and seeing it here in Charlotte, North Carolina. And it was interesting to see it going past. And they said it was obviously not a weather balloon. So I'm going to assume the intelligence re- resources of this nation were able to determine that the equipment that they were using were non-standard of a normal weather balloon. And and it does indicate this is a surveillance vehicle. Yeah, they there, there was. I, I'm, I'm gonna hazard the guess. Obviously, I, I believe that this was doing some form of ISR, intel, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. Likely, it's a collection platform of some sort. My, my guess. I mean, this is supposition as an old SIGINT guy from the army that this was collecting on, you know, a lot of low level, you know, low level RF traffic, possibly trying to pick up radar signals, something along those lines. There's, there's a lot of good things that. You you can get just by, to be honest, floating a balloon over an area, just depending on the payload that's on there. But this certainly with the pathway that I saw with, you know, the the amount of panels that were necessary on it, I believe that this was obviously an intercept aircraft. This was picking up some sort of intelligence collection. Hmm. And you would think, why would you need to do it with a balloon and not, not just use a satellite? It's just higher. It's in the atmosphere. China has the, satellites. Uh, why, why risk it with a balloon? Well, dealing with that, I mean, satellites have a lot of difficulty, believe it or not, trying to pick up any sort of radio frequency signals. A lot of low signals are never going to actually make it out. There's a lot of scatter that occurs and you have to deal with the ionosphere. It's actually a lot easier a lot of times to intercept communications the closer that you are. I always had far better luck intercepting comms on the ground than I ever did in the air. I mean, you would think that it would be the opposite. But once you get up in the air, there's a lot of factors you have to deal with to include just either too much uh, coming in because you have that such a large footprint, which of course this balloon did. But additionally, there's factors on the ground where you actually can use the topography of the ground itself to help funnel that collection. So there's, there's always a good, there's multiple ways to always collect information and there's no single way that's the best. There's just different methods that are better than others for certain things. And that's how you always have to look at it. We don't get rid of, you know, once we invented drones, we didn't stop putting guys on the ground with backpacks. We never stopped doing that. We just added that to our arsenal. 
It makes sense. Well, I guess we'll see how much of that debris was actually salvageable and what they could get from it and what do they understand it was doing and, and so forth. So I understood our intelligence agencies were able to glean a lot from it as it was going across the nation. And then to shoot it down over water, it's easier to collect it than if it hits the ground and then turns into a ball of flames. You're not going to be collecting much. But at least if you do it over water, you can salvage it in some way. So very interesting, Aaron. I really appreciate you keeping us aligned with everything that's going on. Thanks for having me, Josh. And today, we're going to introduce you to our guest. Today, we're glad to have Chris Hetner on the show today. And Chris is a senior executive board director, and a leader in the cybersecurity. He's recognized for raising cyber risk to the corporate board level to protect industries, infrastructures, and economies. He creates operational resilience by aligning robust cybersecurity strategies with business objectives. So his professional judgment with public companies, perspective, and the SEC regulatory and investment oversight experience has really led to some success in some corporate and government roles. Currently, he's on the board of directors of a PE firm, TGIG, and he's a senior advisor for the Chertoff Group, the special advisor of cyber risk for the NACD, and the chair of cybersecurity and privacy for NASDAQ Center for Board Excellence, and of course, the National Board of the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers. I had the pleasure of working with Chris when he was at Ernst & Young. He also was the deputy, I believe, the global chief information security officer for GE, spent some time as the senior vice president at City, and then the managing director over at Marsh, as well as a senior manager of U.S. Department of Treasury Financial Banking Information Infrastructure Committee. And of course, the big one, the senior cybersecurity advisor to the chair of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Welcome to the show, Chris. Glad to have you here. Thanks, Josh. Good to, good to hear from you. Glad to be here. Well, Chris, it's been it's been a kind of a long time since we've we've done a show or any kind of recording together. But did I cover your whole background? What all is what all is going on with you? Yeah, hey, now you, you've got it covered. You know, been in the space for about 30 years. You're early on, super hands-on, technical, more on the cyber defense start of the equation, building out networks, building deployments of firewalls, intrusion detection monitoring for your know, largely Wall Street firms, you know, I'd say first half of my career. And then the second half is largely corporate roles, including a CISO position, a very large bank, and then you know, to, decided in my early 40s to go take a role for the U.S. government and serving in the executive branch as a senior advisor. But uh, quite the interesting uh, career. And now you're know, largely working with corporate directors, CEOs, and the CISO organization on elevating how we think about cyber as a business, operational, and financial issue. And of course, now with the new SEC disclosure requirements and many of the other reporting requirements emanating from critical infrastructure entities through Department of Homeland Security and other agencies, you know, working through the process of determining how companies have established proper procedures and playbooks and, and capabilities to ensure that they've got a, a you know cap- a process in place to identify those threats that are most material to their operations. And then that sets the stage for proper reporting upstream. So been been quite the career, you know, particularly the last decade. That's Josh, nice. you and I in the trenches at EY advising, you know, some of their top clients on <clears throat> financial services, resiliency and, and cyber risk management. And good to be here talking to you again. 
Yeah, that's great, Chris. And I think you you really, I remember I was talking to you when you were considering going to the SEC and you viewed it as a service to your country. And, you know, obviously going from the private sector to the public sector is, is definitely a, a paycheck cut issue. But in many ways, how it was very rewarding for what you were able to do for the rest of us, essentially, while you were advising the chair of the SEC. And then how that kind of focuses and that experience into helping boards of directors actually set up their governance structure right. And what does this mean from a, a board of directors perspective? You Having technical teams that are putting solutions together and having funding requests, and how do you know that actually mitigates risk? I think it's really difficult for them to understand what's going on and give that proper governance structure when that time that time is needed. So tell me this, Chris, how is the new SEC cybersecurity risk governance rule, how is that going to impact the market? I mean, we've heard a lot about that in the news, a lot of stuff that happened in 2021, but how do you see kind of that governance model? How's it going to roll out? How do you see the impact and what should we do to prepare for it? Yeah, no, it's a great, great question. And it's definitely timely. And if we rewind the clock a bit back in 2018, when I was serving under uh, Jay Clayton, the chair at the time, we had updated our disclosure requirements through the 2018 interpretive guidance. And really the centerpiece behind that guidance was how do we make distinctions between cyber risk and cyber incidents? You know, we think about risks as analogous to, you know, we all go to the doctor, let's say I go to the cardiologist and, you know, one of my arteries is 80% blocked. I mean, that's a risk that needs to be treated, right? I'm going to have medicine. I'm going to stop smoking. I'm going to get on the treadmill in an hour a day, stop eating McDonald's and, and reduce that, that risk exposure. Now, the incident using the you know the health analogy is, hey, I just had a heart attack and I got to get rushed to the emergency room and we've got to do CPR or potentially mitigate that exposure from happening again. So the SEC viewed cyber risk and, and cyber incident through a very similar lens around how companies should be understanding and managing those exposures, both on a you know proactive basis, treating the risk, treating the heart disease. And on a reactive basis, let's let's make sure that the patient doesn't die or, you know, containing the incident that it doesn't take down the company. And therefore, protecting the shareholder investor community as to ensure that their investments are safe and sound. Fast forward to, you know, let's see, it's now we're, we're, we're in February 2023 and come April of 2023, the SEC is going to go through the final process of approving the cybersecurity risk governance rules. So there's a few few areas that it's going to represent, in my view, a fairly tectonic shift in the way we think about governing cyber. I think, Josh, you pointed out, there's a ton of technical complexity going on deep in the belly of the organization, ranging from, you know, attack penetration testing to you know, how do we stop lateral movement going from you know one end of the network to you know siphoning out intellectual property as a result of a malicious actor? Or let's face it, you know, perhaps it's even human error, misconfiguration on some of these platforms that introduces a lot of risk. And, and a lot of that complexity just happens on a you know at minute by minute, second by second basis. And we somehow got to figure out how to distill that down to the board in such a way that makes sense to them, that they can action 
they can actually deliver the support that the cybersecurity organization and management team requires. So that's really the intention behind the major component of the new proposed disclosure rules is how do we bring financial business operational impact into the boardroom as it relates to your cyber exposure, whether it's a risk that you know we've got to deal with that needs to be rooted out of my company's network, or perhaps it's even an incident that occurred or that's ongoing that needs to be somehow contained, triaged, understand the impact, and then you know bring that forward to the board in a meaningful way that they understand. Uh, there was a recent article published today, actually, through Forbes Technology Council, indicated about 90% of the boards are not ready for the SEC cyber regulations. And so if we think about the, the rules that are being proposed, they're going to, at the end of the day, increase the requirements for risk transparency on this topic, as well as expertise in the boardroom. And, and with that expertise in the boardroom could represent opportunities for cybersecurity professionals, technology professionals to either sit on a board in a full-time capacity or even serve in an advisory capacity through some type of retained agreement. And so I would list out the core rules and how it's going to impact the community into these key areas. Number one, the requirements now require you to disclose some level of expertise on your board of directors. It could be either a permanent director role. It could be hiring you know, a Josh Nicholson or Chris Hetner on retainer to drop in on a quarterly basis to run threat briefings, to give independent points of views on their on how they disclose and how they manage cybersecurity risk across the company. But companies at the end of the day are gonna be required to include board of directors, cybersecurity experiences potentially the resumes in public disclosures, such as the forms 10K and 8K. Second is going to be, how do we think about our cybersecurity practices from a policy procedure standpoint, how it wraps into governance, and companies are now going to disclose how they govern cyber risk, what committee does it fall into, how does it roll up from the CISO, to enterprise risk management to the board. And if it's in the board, is there a separate committee that focuses on cyber or is it nested into, let's say, you know, a general risk committee or general audit committee? And then beyond that, what's the process by which you're analyzing and managing the process to, for these filings to the SEC? And it they really want to see a structured approach from organizing your security operations budget and your SOC security operations center all the way upstream to how this gets communicated up to the board. And then the third major tectonic shift is really around how do we think about cyber incidents? And cyber incidents for most of the public listed companies and you know all companies by 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 all means need to think about the impact to the company, what we call the so what factor. I mean, we all have some semblance of security incident, whether it's a phishing email attack, whether it's, you know, somebody's trying to, you know, penetrate our perimeter through some type of network scanning tool. But at the end of the day, 
the company that's listed by the SEC needs to deem what's material. And materiality, as we mentioned before, is determined based on the impact to the company's business profile, its financial impact, and its operations. And, and so that, to me, is going to command more of a upgraded security operations center beyond just looking at signals, intelligence, and network traffic activity on the network. It's going to require some type of analysis beyond that to determine if we have an incident, if it impacts this segment of my business, we've got a four-day timer. The clock starts in four days for determining that the situation exists, it occurred, and now you've got to go report that upstream to the SEC. So those are those are fairly three major strokes that are going to represent a tectonic shift in in the enterprise. Wow, that's a lot going on. So, and you think you were saying the rules will be finalized for the SEC at the end of March? Is that right? That's right. It's on the right flex agenda. So the SEC has the rule on the docket for April 2023 for publicly listed companies. I will say if we take a step out of the SEC publicly listed company rule, there are a set of rules that are covering the U.S. securities markets, such as if you're an investment advisor or broker-dealer, that those existing capabilities and requirements are going through an update in terms of disclosure and reporting. So I know they've got a fairly aggressive agenda, including other agencies, by the way, Josh, you know, the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, CISA, yeah, is essentially turning into a quasi-regulatory organization across critical infrastructure entities. And they have a very similar rule to what the SEC has put forth for critical infrastructure entities, such as hospital systems and entities across our energy sector to identify those incidents that are material for reporting. Yeah, I guess that was my next question. What do you see are the priorities for CIS and U.S. critical infrastructure? I see where from a boardroom governance perspective, they're they're trying to tie more accountability and more visibility and oversight into cybersecurity. But at the same time, CIS has a different focus from a U.S. critical infrastructure. So what does the board want to see in terms of cyber risk reporting? You know, when it comes to that, we have the geopolitical issues. We also have the operational issues. So what, what do they want to really see is from a cyber risk reporting perspective? Yeah, CISA, you know, it's it's fairly new in terms of, you know, its creation, you know, just, just about, I believe about 15 years. They have a fairly rich set of data sets and analysis and, and best practice and guidance around TTPs and, and threat mitigation measures that are shared with the community. They've got research teams. They have the the NKIC and, and you know, monitoring platforms, and they run a ton of collaboration with critical infrastructure entities. There's 16 critical infrastructure segments that is in the, the CISA portfolio. But beyond that, they're taking a, a more aggressive step. And in my recent engagement with CISA has been really around resiliency. And so if you think about companies that are operating critical infrastructure that have investments tied to cyber resiliency, the question is, are they doing enough? If a ransomware event were to occur that took down 80% of a network of a critical entity, what types of recovery systems do they have in place? Have they segmented their network? Are they able to compartmentalize 
certain critical file systems for quick restoration and defining exactly you know what's acceptable from a risk tolerance standpoint and and how do they recover into that and some of these entities and particularly in the financial markets as you recall our time at ey josh you know the, the some of these financial market utilities they're clearing and settling you know four to six trillion dollars a day i mean it, you know downtime or an outage for an hour is just totally unacceptable All right. so so with that said CISA is now taking this more proactive approach through their through their strategy that they've published for 2003 and beyond. And one of the key points that that keeps ringing through through the documentation, as well through my engagements with CISA, is how do we move more towards left to boom, and how do we establish more communication that's effective with the owners and operators of these critical infrastructure entities where we're explaining to them, you know, in simple terms, if you have an outage as a result of a ransomware event and you're down, not to your knees for 48 hours, you know, this could potentially cost you a couple hundred million dollars and in, in not only lost production, but also could have systemic impacts across our industry and across critical infrastructure segments that are dependent on you as, as a core you know, delivery mechanism for sustaining our national security, as well as our economy. And so CISA's try, you know, with what they're attempting to do, with, I think they're, they're gonna be successful because we've got some advanced insights in terms of where to paint the picture and better communicate, is how do we bring forward certain data sets to say, Hey, in order to avoid this 100, 200 million dollar risk exposure that has all this downstream systemic impact, you've got to make sure at a minimum you've got basic cyber hygiene. You're blocking and tackling around patching. You know the threat briefing was excellent before. You know basic hygiene principles, and beyond that, you know you might have to double or even triple your technology and your cyber risk investment in order to. Re- reduce or address some of that exposure downstream. And that's a tough conversation to have, particularly in some of the economic headwinds that we're facing now with with, with budgets. And yeah. but you know the expectations you just got to be very clear and transparent. Say in order to avoid or, or mitigate this, you know, 200 million dollar exposure as a result of a 48 hour outage, you've got to at minimum spend 10 million. And based on that it's always difficult dollar, making it so let me ask you this. I mean, boards see things differently sometimes than us guys on the ground running cyber ops. I'm going to read to you the top 10, Forbes top 10 cyber trends. I'm going to see what you think about these and if they relate and what are you hearing at the board level. So I'm going to run through all 10. So number one, the cybersecurity talent drought will get much worse. Two, supply chain attacks will be commoditized. Three, the death and rebirth of cyber insurance. Four, more smart devices, more risk. We have five, cyber attacks will cost lives. So they're they're anticipating that people will actually die from cyber attacks. Number six, the SHTF moments, when just things happen for no reason, will put disaster recovery into a forefront again. And I think that's a, a, a big one. Number seven, machine learning AI tools continue to change the game for cybersecurity. And number eight, 
more cyber criminals in the slammer. So they're predicting more are going to get arrested. I don't, I don't see that one happening. Then it says tables will turn. Cybercrime will hit international companies in China and Russia. So normally mm-hmm. they've been off limits. You can see even in some ransomware where they disconnect or they disarm themselves when they see they're in a Russian IP address or in a Russian domain. What they're predicting is the tide will turn. Those cyber criminals will, will actually turn on their handlers. And then number 10 was quantum computing to make a debut. So what are your thoughts on those those top 10 things? I think it's a, it's a rich list. I would say the point of entry for conducting a cyber attack, if you're incentivized as a criminal, we're looking to profit. I think that point of entry from a technological skill set standpoint is going to drop significantly because of some of the items you mentioned before, Josh, such as the introduction of AI, chat GPT. You know, I can essentially tell, go write a ransomware type of attack or or create a, a script that essentially will serve as a, think of it as like crimeware as a service. Mm-hmm. And, you know, based on the conversation we had before, there's going to be an increased expectation around transparency. So how effective are you reducing cyber risk? And I would say if we look at the current cybersecurity ecosystem, where you factor in the people that we obviously have a talent shortage, we look at process improvement and technology whether it's an endpoint detection platform or a SIM platform, most of the this ecosystem is centered around the technical elements of, of cyber. And the problem we have now with the new SEC rule, which is where we see a major gap between the CISO and the board, is the, the current SOC you know, ecosystem is going to have to be updated to, to reflect these new requirements around cyber threat and cyber incident impact. And the impact specifically on the business, operational, financial exposure of the company. So if I think about the SOC of the future, and I know your, your platform is, is looking at this as well, you know, it's taking business intelligence, including data sets about the company from a business impact standpoint to help the security operations center, including the incident response team to determine how impactful are these incidents really on my balance sheet? And if you look at the new SEC rule, how this rings through, they're very clear, Josh, in terms of what kind of costs will a business interruption introduce? If I'm down or have an outage for 48 hours, does that delay my production release on certain products? Mm-hmm. What about the remediation costs or stolen intellectual property by certain foreign governments or adversaries? How does that cost implicate my balance sheet? How does it implicate our company strategy? What if it's proprietary information? And then, of course, we can't ignore the long-term effect once some of these incidents occur. What about the shareholders, the violation of, of potential privacy laws, criminal laws, reputational damage, class action suits that can materially outweigh the cost associated with that incident as it occurred day one. And, yeah. you know, we've, we've seen the fines, you know, so Equifax breach, that was $1.5 billion all in. 
uh, at the time of the incident, I believe the company was valued at $3 billion. That's So it basically took, you know, half of the company's valuation just as a result of that cyber attack. Well, so, so, so that's where I, I see a, a trend where you know, we've got a business spy almost the security operations center to make it more nimble and more uh, yeah. relevant to these real time events. Well, I think that's sort of one one of the things that always seems to come ahead, where the board's trying to get governance and oversight, and then the operational teams are just trying to get through the day. And we seem to be penny pinched a lot. I'll tell you one thing that's happened to me in the last couple of years I've never seen before. It used to be in the security operations side of this, we would buy some hardware. We'd buy a NAS, we'd buy a Splunk, we'd, we'd install it with capital dollars. We'd depreciate it over three to five years. Mm-hmm. And we had storage in order us to collect logs and start alerting and create that security operations SIM type function. And then we started moving to the cloud. And then everything went to expense instead of a capital outlay for hardware. And then you have the bean counters with the bill from AWS and they go, Josh, can we log less? I mean, the bill is pretty high from events per second perspective and what's coming in. We need to log less because the bill's high. And it was the first time I've ever had to justify what events I'm logging to the bean counters and accounting in order to to make sure they understand what we're we're not just wasting cycles for no reason. It was the craziest thing to have to justify that to account and why we had to heat each of these logs and why do we actually have to log at the level we do, especially when a lot of the, the intent was to, we don't have enough visibility. We have to get more information. I can't stand when we, we start off from a technical perspective, for instance, and say that we're just going to dump all the data into a SIM and then let the SIM figure it out rather than developing sound use cases and then figuring out where the data sources are and then consuming them in those manners. So it's really difficult sometimes to, how do I portray that to the board? How do I portray the resource limitations or internal things that I have? And some of it is caused by them and their budgeting, the budget that they approve for for management. So a lot of times it's like, we're supposed to do more with less, but they only just look at it from a SEC or a compliance perspective. They have no idea what it takes to execute that in the real world. I guess my question is, how do you connect those two? How do you connect the board member to the security operations engineer that's working or the chief information security officer that's really engaged in what's happening operationally. How do you connect the two? Yeah, it's it's a great point, Josh. And, and, and unfortunately, what you just cited, it does happen in real world. It did happen with me when I was a CISO for a global bank. And to quite, you know, to be quite frank with you, my only leverage point to, to double the size of my budget was the fact that we were essentially regulated by the Federal Reserve that didn't exist anymore. That was my only leverage point. Mm. So compliance can be used as a lever to get more budget, but compliance doesn't translate into best security. So, you know, one of the mechanisms I've used that's been successful is understand the nuances of the budget. Look, you know, there's a lot of duplicative tooling sets you know, IT spend that could be rationalized and justified. I mean, you know, I was discovering data centers in Eastern Europe when I was a CISO, you know, three years in. I was like, really? Like, you know, we've got, you know, server closets across these building platforms. You know, why don't we go ahead and consolidate? So now with the availability of cloud computing and the efficiency that's come with that, I think there's there's an opportunity to show that we can do, uh, you know, IT computing more efficiently 
using advanced technology, advanced cloud capability. And then if you show that best forward, say, hey, you know, we've got, you know, we view that th there is some duplication that could be removed. I think the next conversation with the board is based on our current investment, based on the threats that we see coming against companies that are very similar to us and the impact to our, our bottom line, our, our business, here's the potential for what we would call an annual expected loss due to cyber. And the insurance markets have solved for this. I think our view in, in my ecosystem is the cyber insurance industry, what we call the risk transfer markets, are going to help serve as the arbiter for cyber risk management to inform the safety measures that we should apply to our respective enterprises. No different than how the automobile insurance industry sets standards on, say, let's say, seatbelt standards or or sensors in automobiles, and and so if we if we can distill down the technical debt that we have, the threats that are specific to our company, and what the most you know material impact is going to be on our business, based on how that's kind of pulled together, you put the you know put that all in front of a board. And we're seeing this being very successfully adopted through the National Association of Corporate Directors. We have a board reporting service that we launched across our 25,000 members. It's it's a pretty you know comprehensive report, and we produce it as an annual expected loss. You can expect to lose this amount of money across these domains: ransomware, IP theft, misappropriation of funds, whatever whatever the the, the outcomes may be. You speak to them in business terms, you paint the financial operational exposure analysis, and the board needs to make some decisions. Okay, so how much of this risk am I willing to accept? How much of this risk can we transfer using an insurance mechanism? Which, by the way, you, know, you could probably transfer on average between 7 to 8% of the risk. And then the balance is, okay, so based on the budget that I allocated to the CISO, here's how much risk I can reduce and drive down. Yeah. And and the board needs to sign off on that. It should not then, be the CISO to sign off on that risk because and then, he or she does not own the risk. And then how do you actually quantify that properly? So I'm looking at this report. So according to a recent report by SonicWall, in 2021, they saw ransomware attacks increase by 105% from the previous year and encrypted threats by 167%. While ransomware might be may have been front and center in the report, there were also significant concerns over phishing and business enterprise compromise. So phishing is still a part of it. Ransomware spiked, and then we started to see it drop off a little in 2022 as people's defenses, the recovery systems were able to work better. We're still we're still seeing ransomware activity, but it seems to have dropped off uh, in yeah. 2022, 2023. I think having Conti implode on each other and had the Ukrainians and the Russians fighting each other in that cybercrime and having that source code re revealed onto the internet. I thought that was, it was great to see that. But some of those, those incidents that are occurring, how do you actually present that to boards? How do you get budget approval? How do you get their insight into things? It seems just like a huge disconnect. I mean, every time I've had to report up through boards, it was more, it was more coverage against a standard. It was GOBA testing or it's, or it's an OCC audit. Those were always the big, compliance focus, but how many actually took from the 
are we prepared for this from a risk management perspective? It it seems like boards really focus more on the governance piece more than the risk management piece, which I, I think they they anticipate management to handle. It's just been really interesting seeing how different companies handle it and different ones want some guidance or like a VCISO type service at the board. I'm, we're hearing two things. Is one is board want their own expertise. They don't rely on the security of just a security team. And they're, they're going to be a little bit biased towards the things that they put in their budget. But when you have outside consulting that's helping the board there, we're not tied emotionally or anything else towards what got approved in that budget or what got said in some of the risk reports. I think that helps. A number of things we're also seeing is a couple of boards are asking their C-suite, artificial intelligence, machine learning, what are we doing about it? What can we do about it? And a lot of times the CISO security directors say, I have no clue what we're going to do about it. It's built into some of the products and tool sets that we have, but how do I put a strategy together for it? I don't really know. That's right. What we've been focused on at, at Deep Seas is we have this uh, artificial data science team over in Poland. Some some really smart guys really understand it to the nth degree. And so we're going to start using those guys to develop a service called AI readiness assessment. So our job is to analyze the tech stack that you have, understand what your environment looks like, recommend different areas where this is you need to get on the road for machine learning, artificial intelligence. What are your data points that you have? What are the the data quality? Your your quality of data has to be through the roof in order for for this really to work. And so we have the guys that we're going to start doing these kind of assessments. And it's really interesting because you're, you're having them have to report back to the board going, this is what we plan to do with machine learning, artificial intelligence. And it's really out of the wheelhouse of most cybersecurity people. I mean, my background is more incident response, network engineering, network architecture, that kind of hands-on keyboard stuff, as well as managing risk, cyber risk from a technical perspective and a business perspective across many different different organizations. But actually the data, data science behind it, what are the models? How do they use it? All that stuff is just really nebulous and kind of esoteric. It's like these group of people over there know how to use it and what what's the technology. Now, how do I actually accomplish things in business? I think it's going to be, is going to be difficult as we move forward with it, you know? Yeah. I I couldn't agree more, Josh. And, you know, to your point, you know, mo- most of the CISO profile tends to be more of a technical technologist. And, you know, we shouldn't expect the CISO to be you know, a financial expert or or an enterprise risk management expert. And so what we're seeing from a trend standpoint, and we've actually ran some surveys across the, the NECD community, the NASDAQ, we, we look EY, produced a, a survey across chief risk officers. And all the results are, are indicating that cybersecurity is a top concern. And so with the advancements in cyber risk governance and understanding, you know, how this is a mission critical part of the board's ESG agenda. The advancements in how financial exposures result from cyber risk is now becoming more of a common theme. So what the NACD decided to do is leverage the analytics, which is a patented method. It's combined with artificial intelligence. It has industry-aligned threat context information based on the various taxonomy very similar to the Verizon DBIR report, if you remember back in the yeah, day. It looks at cyber control effectiveness specific to your organization. 
In fact, it leverages the same analytics used by some of the top leaders within the insurance industry to provide financial insights on the organization's current cyber risk exposure. And if you think about this data set, which is about a decade worth of data, I mean, it's not you know, the actuarial data that we have, for instance, for flood or fire, right? Which is you know close to 100 years, but we at least have a starting point and we're able to look at cyber incident data, pair that with cyber insurance claims experiences, and then you organize this activity across 19 global geographic regions, 21 industry segments. I mean, we've got, gosh, producing over a billion data points on cyber loss exposure, and cyber threat actors, which is then compiled and analyzed to produce what we call an annual expected loss analysis. And so predictive types of analytics that's already solved for by, you know, to your point before, the beam counters, if I may, or the actuaries, all we're doing is combining business and cyber technical context to that, combined with industry data, geographic information. So if you operate like in Europe, you have GDPR, you have privacy implications. We look at corporate financials and we look at the cybersecurity controls and that presents a financial exposure analysis that's presented to the board. And this has been very well received. It's been validated by the cyber insurance industry, now by the boardroom community. And it takes the brain damage out of the CISO to start running these you know, this, this, these types of models that just have failed. Yeah. And so this is why, you know, I joined the, the insurance industry, you know, four years ago when I left the SEC, because our, our study and our analysis, when we were producing our guidance and explode, exposure analysis indicated that the insurance industry has the software. And now we're just using the same analytics used across some of the top carriers in the globe. Yeah, and I know there is a lot of move to by boards looking at managed detection and response, rather building cybersecurity programs internally. How can you leverage other third parties to do that? Concentrate on doing what you do well and, and let others concentrate on what they do well. And it has been a great time talking to you, Chris. I think we covered a lot of different topics, especially what's going on with the SEC now. Where do you see kind of the board its mentality is, what are they going to be focused on? What can we anticipate moving forward? I think understanding how they're they're going to be receiving pressure, how the SEC plans to finalize these rule sets by the end of March, and how that may impact our reporting that is necessary and what's important to them. It's, it seems to be a lot of change. I don't know how much it's up to you to tell me how much that's good or bad, but it seems like a lot of change. So, but I definitely appreciate you being on the show, and I look forward to to, to catching up with you soon, Chris. You have a good day. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Josh. Good to see and, you. Absolutely. And for the rest of everyone else, thank you. Don't forget to submit or, or subscribe and to like. I also definitely need those kind of comments and feedbacks in iTunes. That really helps to grow the show. The next show's coming up. We have a couple different episodes. We're going to have probably response and or potential Cyber Fusion Center episode on the next one. So until then, great talking, everybody, and stay safe.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure.